Today we are continuing our series on Genesis. And if you were here last week, uh, Scott unpacked and opened up the first chapter of Genesis and how God begins his story. And And he made this really incredible point that Genesis opens up by introducing the main character. And I'm sure many of us were surprised to see it wasn't our name in there. It didn't say David. Surprisingly, it said God. And then it took a moment to tell you something about him. It says God made, God created, God brought into being. And as he brought things into being, he paused, looked, and marveled and said, that is good. And so what we see in that space is what God did. What God did was he brought goodness into its absence. He brought, where there wasn't goodness, he made good things. And what Scott pointed out was this poetic narrative of creation crescendos, summits on these two points. The celebration of God and rest in God. And what we see there is that God made everything. Everything was good. And as we look around and we see like stars in the sky, you know, we see the sunsets, the sunrise, and we go, well, that's pretty. But then what God does is he says, I want to weave my goodness, not into something you just observe, but into something you experience every day of your life as you go through the rhythms of living. And so, so we're going to hold on to this goodness of God. We're actually going to keep coming back to that. That is what we need to know. That is, it's, it's rare that you preach a sermon where actually the entire context you're meant to know is set up for you before you start. But that's what we need to know going into what we're going to talk about today. Because what we're talking about today is when God pauses and says, all right, time to make people, time to make people. And we're going to ask, why on earth did he make people? We are messy and we stuff things up. Come on, is that not true? And so, and, so, and so why did God bother making us? And how can we reflect on the Genesis, reflect on the first people and find lasting purpose in our lives today in the 21st Century. So would you turn with me straight into Scripture? We're going to dive straight in to Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Hopefully it's not too small. Um, it says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with a seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Have we ever had a moment, church, where we have a, is that all? Is that it kind of moment? Like we, we, something's been hyped, something's happened, and we've gone through it, and then we've gone, really? 
Was that, let, let me explain what I mean. A few months ago, uh, last year, halfway through last year, my computer was dying. And it had been dying for a long time. It was held together by duct tape and my hopes and dreams. And it was failing me dramatically. And so I decided it was time to, to, to fork out the money and buy a new computer. Now, I don't want to talk about any specific company right now, but I got absolutely suckered by the advertising and marketing of some fruit-flavored computer company. And I, I went in and I bought this new computer. And it was so exciting. I was pumped. I get home, my, my brother-in-law, who's one of my closest friends, was there. My sister, who's also one of my closest friends, was there. And we were all in my room ready to unbox this. And if you know anything about fruit-flavored computer companies, it's that they know how to box things, right? And it feels luxurious as you open that box. And so there we were. We pulled the box off, and we go, ooh, ah. And this is a great anticipation-building moment. And the computer comes out. It gets plugged in. It loads up. It asks me a question. Do you want to restore your previous backup? I say, well, of course I do. It says four hours remaining. And I say, oh. As you can imagine, the, uh, the uh, anticipation wilted. I was the only one left. And uh, the login screen popped up. It's just me sitting there. The login screen pops up. And I go, here we go. The time has come. I'm so psyched about this. I type in my password. It loads up. The desktop hits. And I breathe in. I go, a new computer. Heck yes. This is living. And I was like, it's kind of like my old computer, actually. Just a bit brighter, a little bit faster. I swear the advert said my life would be better. Is this all? Is this, is this it? Huh, I got suckered. But here's the thing. We have these moments, these is-this-all moments, is-this-it moments all the time, especially in our lives where we have hype on hype on hype over every little thing, where they say, you know, a, a little lipstick thing could change your entire life, and they say, you know, this movie will change the way you think about the universe, and we go and we go, oh, it was, a, it was another movie, you know, it was, okay, it was nothing. And so we have these experiences all the time, but the problem is, is we don't just happen in life, they happen about life, Right? Those moments where we hit a point and we go, really? Is this all? You know, we folded our laundry, we cleaned our kitchens, we made our beds, we got the paycheck, we got the job, we got the degree, we raised our kids, we got married, you know, we got popular, we told the joke, the joke was funny, they laughed, we bought the fruity computer. We breathe in, we breathe out. Is this it? Is this living? Is this all we and the one thing I love when I read Genesis 1 is that God is like, no, my goodness, people, this is not it. And he pauses and he says, let me explain to you why I've made you. And so he, he, he takes the time to, to make a promise and a statement to us where we are right at the beginning. And he says, he says that we were made for purpose, for a reason we are inherently valuable. And New Life Calling Gather, I would love it if as a church we could not just hear these as abstract ideas or words or thoughts or nice ideas. No, no, no. This is something the Holy Spirit, I believe, right now in this place is moving to put on our hearts and our souls so that we would leave a changed and empowered and filled with faith people. Because it is good news. It is good news that God crafted us for a reason. And so my hope is that by the end of today, we may have a better sense of what it is to become, to become the people that God has made us to be, to live the lives he has called us out to live. And somehow, somewhere today in the 21st century, we would find life in such an old, old book. So would you join with me in prayer as we step into that? Father God, you alone are good. You alone are our hope. 
you break through the hardness of our hearts and you offer us life. God, I pray that as we go through today, it wouldn't be another sermon, it wouldn't be another Sunday, it would be something we are filled and moved and motivated and just spiritually enhanced to come and be filled with the purpose that you have for us, that we may have spiritual eyes and softened hearts, that we may leave this place so overfilled with your goodness that we reveal it everywhere we go. Lord, let that be the case, but only, only because you're here, only because your spirit is moving can this happen. So holy God, Fill us with the confidence and the faith to believe that you are at work and something beautiful is happening. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, so in the Bible we have this book of Genesis, we read it, but right next to that book we have a book called Exodus, the very next book in the Bible. And in this book of Exodus, oh, Siri wants to talk to me, how fun. Um, in this very next book in the Bible we have, oh, it's actually not fun, she won't go away. Oh, well, you guys. Um, we, yeah, in the very next book in the Bible, we have Exodus, which is about a group of people, the, like, like human beings, that God has ushered out of slavery and called out of brokenness. And to these people that God has called, God, like, the crazy thing about these people is these people shouldn't exist. If you're following us on the Becoming Plan, you recently read about the story of a man named Abraham. And Abraham's wife was barren. It was the end of his family line. These people should not exist. So God had not just saved them from slavery, but he had actually saved them from not existing. And he had called them into existence and driven them through life to this moment where he had saved them from the brokenness and the oppression of the world. And he was revealing to them his goodness. And this is what he says to them. He says, uh, in Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then all, out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words which you will speak to the Israelites. When I read that, I look back to Genesis 1. You see, in Genesis 1, we see this beautiful tapestry woven together of, of God crafting the goodness, his goodness, into everything he makes, and then actually calling us out, calling us out of just witnessing it, but into a rhythm of enjoying God in every way, in, in the rhythms of rest and celebration. But then what we see is, as, as, we, as we zoom into the creation of man, God uses these two words. He says, I will bless them. And then he goes on, he says, and I gave to them. When he, when he says, I, I gave to them the fruits bearing seed tree things, like I, I gave to them. What does that mean? It's a gift. It's for our sake. How do I know it's for our sake? Because I have one of these, a tongue. And you know what's on my tongue? Taste buds. You know what didn't need to be on my tongue? Taste buds. But God gave me taste buds because he said, I want you to enjoy what I've made for you. I want you to taste food and know that I am good. And he didn't stop there. He gave me these things, eyes, through which I may perceive the sunsets and the sunrises and the waves rippling in the waters and see the beauty of God everywhere I look. And then he gave me these things where I get to hear, hear the goodness of God. Yes, through nature, but also when he speaks to me and when I speak to other people and I hear the goodness of God in relationship. More than that, well, he gave me these things, fingertips, the ability to sense, to feel, to walk through life and know his goodness, the way I touch things. He gave me this, a heart that I may experience his goodness 
emotionally as I walk through life. He gave me this, a mind that I may remember his goodness as I walk through life. And I may pause to reflect and know that he is the God who has always been good. And in the middle of this beautiful tapestry of God saying, how good am I and how good am I making your lives? He says, let me tell you these two things. The first is image and the second is rule. Image, rule. Image is this. You are inherently valuable. It is a strange, unique, weird thing that God said, when I made you, I made a part of me in your image, or I made a part of you in my image, I should say. God crafted humans, and in our DNA, in our very being, there is this unique and strange and beautiful and wonderful thing that is God's goodness, God's image. It's in the fabric of me. It's in the fabric of you. You can't outsin it. You can't outwork it. It's in every person we meet in the world. They are inherently valuable, and when we meet a human being, the first thing we should remember it's, man, there's something about them that looks like God. It's worth observing. It's worth looking at. It's worth seeing. But then he says rule. And I want to point out that rule and image are actually very similar things. Why? Because God uses words like rule throughout the whole Bible. Rule, kingdom, royalty. And they all kind of mean the same thing. You see, a king wasn't all-powerful. A king was only as powerful as he could reach, as he could influence. Right? If you step out of his borders... He had no power of you anymore. Because rule and royalty and dominion and kingdom are actually all words for one other word, influence. And what God's saying is this. I've crafted you in my image. I have surrounded you with my goodness. I have filled you with my goodness. Your goodness is in the very, fab- my goodness is in the very fabric of who you are. Now with everything you have and every way you influence and everything you can touch, when you interact with the birds of the sky and the, and the plants and the animals and the fish, would you just reveal a bit of that goodness to them? Would you just show them it? Let them see it. So what were we made for? We were made to fully enjoy our God in all of its glory as it surrounds us, as it's threaded into our experience of life, and it's a part of the very fabric of who we are. And then we are called to be so filled with it that we can do nothing but reveal it everywhere we go. Sounds easy, right? Simple. No problem at all. The thing is, though, it doesn't take long, does it? I mean, within a few chapters, human beings have forgotten the goodness of God. They're caught up with the goodness they can make. They're, good, they're caught up in their own name, their own image. They've forgotten that they're inherently valuable. So they spend their lives trying to prove they're valuable at the cost of other people. And they start competing and destroying. And we have murder. And then we have genocide. We have rape. And we have incest. And we have these horrible, disgusting, broken images and visuals going on in this early Bible that, that, that Mike pointed out before. He said, it is disgusting when we look at it. It is horrid what's going on in these early chapters. What's happening? It's human beings forgetting the goodness of God, forgetting the joy of God, forgetting that God is better than we are and we can trust him. And so in this space where we're so caught up in the brokenness of ourselves and our need to prove ourselves, we see a God who pursues humans. And in Exodus 19, we see a God who is pursuing a broken collection of human beings and calling them back to Eden. He says, I am still just as good as I was in Eden. You're still just as beautiful as I made you to be. You're still called to enjoy goodness, my my joy throughout your life. But I want to show you why I'm good in a new way. I am the goodness of God who pursues you 
who does not relent, who will chase you and chase you and chase you. In Exodus 19:46, where it says, um, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The, the, the people in there are actually seeing the pictures of Eden because a kingdom of priests sounds complicated Do you realize kingdom just means influence. Kingdom just means rule, influence. It's a pointing back to Eden. And, and, and priests, that's a weird word, except every culture in human history has kind of had a similar function for priests. The point of priests is that you look at them and you're reminded of God. You look at them and something about them reminds them of the God that they serve or worship. He says, I'm calling you not to just to be a, a small group of you to be priests, but I'm calling that every single one of you in this nation could be a people that people look at and are reminded of me, are reminded of my goodness. You are called to be people who influence the world with my goodness. Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, I'm sold. I'm in. This is great. What does it look like practically? How do we do this? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And actually, it's the very question the, uh, the Israelites asked. They said, we love the idea. All right, let's be a holy nation. What does holy mean? Uh, yeah, priests? What are priests? And so God writes a book to them and says, hey, let me explain this to you. And that book is called Leviticus. If you've been a Christian for a while in this room, you probably shuddered. It's okay. It's actually a beautiful book. But that book is a book where God wrote and said, let me teach you what it is to be a kingdom of priests. And, and throughout the main kind of flesh of that book, he shows what it means to be unique and to be different. And then he focuses on what it is to worship and to pursue justice. And we see that the lives God has called us to be is to be unique, set apart, and different in the way we worship our God and the way we fight for justice in our world. And these are the two parts that we see. If you want to know what it looks like to image God, it looks like, uh, let, me, let me make this really clear for you, like racism. We hate racism, right? We abhor it. How awful a thing it is to treat someone differently on the basis of nothing that they've done nor can control. That is horrid. We abhor racism as a people. And God abhors it. And he says, image me, hate racism. And we say, deal, done. But here's what happens, and here's where this goes wrong. We stop being racist. But the problem was never that we thought that was logical and made sense. The problem was that there was some deeper brokenness manifesting in that way. And that deeper brokenness, that deeper insecurity and fear that what if they are equal to me, what if they're better than me? That deeper fear that's like, I need to prove myself, I need to be dominant. That deeper fear that's like, I don't understand them. I'm, I don't trust them. And it's this brokenness that's taking place. And you know what? Let's say we totally as a people cut out racism. But then what happens next? It just shows that those things just come out in a different way. It comes out as that religious group over there now. It's no longer about the race. It's about the religious group. Or it's no longer about the race. It's about the gender. It's no longer about this or that. But it will always come out in a different way. And it will always result in oppression and pain and hurt. And God says, would you trust me? I'm going to hit the root to this, but it means you're going to have to trust me because you're not going to understand how these two things meet. But I'm going to ask you to watch the way you think in your head. I'm going to ask you to watch the things you say with your mouth. And would you trust me with that? And so, and so we see the way that God, when he calls us to image him, he calls us to the highest level. And he says, would you trust me? Would you follow me? Would you fall into that? But the problem is, too often I read scriptures and I don't trust him. Too often I read scriptures and say, this seems redundant. I don't think I need this bit. Ah, I know you're God, but I think I'll work on that one in a few years. You know, like we're not really there trusting God fully. We just work on the ones we're kind of good out of the ones we feel most guilty for. 
And if you're like me in this room, perhaps that's exactly where you sat, where you were like, you started talking about rules. You started talking about watching what I say. How am I supposed to do that all the time? Half the time I speak without thinking. How am I supposed to watch what I say? I didn't even know I said something. Watch my thoughts? They hit me before I even know they're there. How am I supposed to watch my thoughts? And all the bazillion other ways in the Bible that God calls us to holiness. You want to do all of that at the same time, every day, every minute, every moment? I'm overwhelmed. I'm burdened by shame. I'm burdened by my failure. I'm burdened by my guilt. I can't do that. And it was brilliant, I love, about the book of Leviticus, perhaps the most religious book in the entire Bible, is that it's bookended by these two themes. The last ending is these chapters about how to do festivals well, how to celebrate well. But the beginning are these sacrifices. It's this section at the beginning where God says, let me tell you what to do with your guilt and with your shame. It's the image he gives. He says, here's your shame and here's your guilt. You've got it all over you, I see it. Now gather it. Leave it at the door. Leave it at the door. Okay, now walk in. Now let's talk about being a priest. It's not that we're carrying this. We can't carry our guilt and our shame into priesthood. It's like, no, leave it outside. Okay, now you've laid down your guilt, your shame, your pain, your hurt, your frustration, your insecurity. Now you've laid that down. Now let's talk about being a priest. And if we enter a space where we try to be priests, where we try to be images of God, consumed by shame, we've already failed to image him because he's not a God who's consumed with shame nor a God who is putting shame on us. So he's like, man, would you, just, would you just trust me, people? Leave it at the door. Trust that I'm good. Now that you trust that I'm good, let's step in. Let's step in. Let's step in. And I love this because, because what we see here is what God's saying is I want your motivation. I want your reason for trusting me. I want your reason for imaging me to be that you know me. And you know who I am. And you've tasted me. And you've seen me. And you've heard me. And you've felt me. And you've experienced me. And you remember me. And so I want you to choose your will to choose to step more into me. That's the motivation. And if we're going to try to be godly people, consume guilt and shame, and we want to say, I don't want to let God down. I'm scared of what he might do if I fail. I'm afraid that he might not use me because I'm never going to be good enough. God's like, no, that is not my calling to image me. Would you lay it all down? Now you think after hearing something so beautiful, you know, this is it. You've solved the problem. Wonderful. Israel's got it, right? But for any keen observers of the Old Testament, you would know that's not how it goes. Israel continues to stuff it. They forget to enjoy God. They forget to lay down their guilt and shame. They forget they were made in his image. They were forgetting he was beautiful. And they were caught up in their brokenness and their hurt and their pain. And it seems that nothing God says seems to solve the problem. Even as he continues to tell them, remind them, and chase them with his goodness, they still can't see it. And we get to the New Testament. And as a disciple of Jesus called Peter, who wrote a letter which he aptly named Peter. Um, and in that, First Peter chapter 2, 9 to 10, it says this, but you are a chosen people. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special 
possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Something unique about Peter is the way Peter writes this. You see, I don't know if you recognize this, but it says, hey, you are a royal priesthood. It sounds a lot like, hey, you're called to be a kingdom of priests. And when he says you're a holy nation, it sounds a lot like when he tells Exodus to be a holy nation. And when he says you're going to be my special possession in Exodus, that sounds a lot like you are my special possession in 1 Peter. We see that these verses in in, in 1 Peter and and, and Exodus are linking together to form a harmony and to say this, my mission hasn't changed, my purpose hasn't changed, your value hasn't changed, your calling hasn't changed, I am the same God now that I was then, and I am the same God then that I was in Eden. Nothing's changed. And yet something unique about Peter's writing is that Peter seems to write this with a full stop, where Exodus was written with a colon, a semicolon, you know. Like, Peter seems to write this as though it's done, whereas Exodus wrote this as a, it's something you need to still be doing, something you need to work on. If you keep my covenants, if you do this, you will be. Whereas this says, no, it's happened, you are. And we read the rest of the New Testament and we see that humanity isn't falling back into the same rhythms. It's not the focus anymore. The focus has shifted. The focus has changed. So what happens? What's unique? What makes this different? I mentioned before this was written by a disciple of Jesus. That's what makes it unique. That's what makes it different. This is a man who walked with Jesus, God himself, firsthand, who saw Jesus, knew Jesus, and was the first to receive, one of the first to receive what Jesus did with his entire life for Peter, for the disciples, for the early church, and for us today. You see, when we look back to this book about being a righteous person in Leviticus, what we don't realize is that that it actually, there's a chapter in there, chapter 16, which Hebrew writers would say is the crux of this book. It's the center of this book. And you see chapters 1 to 4 say, here's what I want to do. I want you to lay down your guilt. But chapter 16 says, now let's talk about how to deal with that guilt so you never have to pick it up again. And chapter 16 has this strange imagery of a scapegoat, a goat that would, all of the sin of the people would fall on and the goat would run away and then hopefully they never met the goat again. But even if they did, it didn't matter. But the point is that goat carried the sin. The goat was gone. We're good. Except for who here is well aware that a goat can't deal with my sin problem? Right? That seems absurd. But the goat wasn't a goat. It was an image of Jesus. Because I know this, God can deal with my sin problem. I know this, Jesus did deal with my sin problem my shame problem, my guilt problem. And no longer must I say, leave my sin at the door because I say something else. I say, leave my sin at the cross where it's been dealt with and my healing is secured and my confidence is in Jesus, not my ability. And this changes everything because now guilt and shame are no longer even a component in my walk with God. 
You see, what happens is I come to this conclusion that God is so good and so loving and so much better than I am. I want to point out that's what the word repentance means, is to turn to God and remember how much better and more beautiful and more good he is than we are. And we turn back to him, remember his goodness, and that he is exactly what this world needs. And in that space, in that space, there is no space, no place for guilt, nor shame. And he's like, I've dealt with it. What are you waiting for? In your families, in your workplaces, in your careers, in the way you live and you treat people. Overflow with my goodness. Just let people look at you and like a priest be reminded of me. That's it. And maybe you're in this space and you're like, man, I would love to do that, but I'm not sure if I know how to image you. I'm not good at this stuff. I'm grumpy and irritable and I forget so quickly. And, you know, God's like, yeah, but I fill you with my spirit and I've got you and I'm working on you. Would you just lean in? And this is why we did our series on rhythms to begin this year because we said and we believe that when we take the time to pause and get to know God and to rest in his rhythms of grace, our lives begin to change and we begin to be filled up with a new way of living and looking at life and it changes everything. So I'm going to get the band to come up and what we're going to do, what we're going to do is we're going to take a moment to be with God because here's the thing, you can't go to work tomorrow and do this and you can't go home today and be this. And you can't go to your families or your friends or your relationships and succeed in this until first we pause and be filled with him. And that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. We're going to return to that song that was sung earlier. We're going to return to a declaration of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And whether you stand and you declare these praises to your soul and to God or whether you stay seated and you sit with him and just be with him, it's not about what you do. It's about who you're doing it with. Just take a moment to be with the God who wants nothing more than to be with you, the God who has pursued, who has crafted you with goodness, imbued you with goodness, filled you with the rhythms of goodness, has loved you with goodness, and has saved you in the ultimate sacrifice that you may forever know his goodness. That's who we're sitting with. So whatever, whatever roadblock, whatever hardness of heart, whatever hard and blind eyes we're feeling, just remember that that is not our God. And our God is the God who is sitting in this space and saying, be with me, I'm here with you. And I'm excited, I'm excited to be sitting with you in this space. Hey, let's pray together. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you are so good. Like, who can compare? I thank you, God, that you are beautiful beyond compare. You are wonderful beyond measure. You create experiences of joy that I could never even fathom, that, that in the wise words of Job, that your works are too wonderful for me to know. But you're not a God who says, I'm good and you guys suck and that's it. But you're a God who is goodness even moves in the way you pursue us, in the way you relentlessly chase the people who relentlessly have rejected you. So God, I praise you this morning because you
you alone are good and you alone are faithful and you alone are able and in this space right now you are working and something special is happening and I pray that as a congregation we would trust you with our hard hearts we would trust you with our blind eyes we would trust you with our guilt and with our shame and with our failure in this space what we would do is know that you are good and you are faithful that you are the writer of our story you are the keeper of our present you are the keeper of our future And if you're in this space and you don't know Jesus, let's change that. If you're in this space and you haven't met Jesus, but something that I just said seemed to shift the way you perceive, believe, or want to interact with Him, I want to say this. This is your moment. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to do a countdown. But I am going to invite this church and you to say a quick prayer with me. Because I believe this could be a defining moment in your life. This could be a moment where God is and, and has been moving in a way that changes everything. So if you don't know Jesus in this space and you're like, man, that Jesus does not sound like what my education class has taught me. It doesn't sound like what Hollywood showed me or my parents misinformed me. It sounds like something beautiful and good and I want a part of that. Then with all eyes closed and with all heads bowed, I'm gonna invite you to respond just by praying a prayer with me. Say, Father God, thank you for your goodness mercy, your love. Would you come? Fill me. I need you. My way was not the best way. Your way is. I want you. Help me to want you more. Help me to lean back. In Jesus' mighty name.